This is a Macquarie Group podcast. Hello, and welcome to Macquarie's Perspectives podcast, where our diverse team of experts and invited special guests share their latest thinking on current and emerging topics. My name is Alyssa McMahon, part of Macquarie's corporate affairs team. Global economic growth has been remarkable since the world began to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, with many countries making up much of the GDP they lost when it brought their economies to a standstill. But rebounding global demand, supply chain bottlenecks, and soaring commodity prices have caused inflation to rise sharply. As central banks rush to respond, they are walking a tightrope between bringing down inflation without stalling economic growth. Joining me today to discuss how we got here and where we might end up, particularly in the U.S., is David Doyle, Macquarie's head of economics. Welcome, David. Hi, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So, David, how do we sit down to have this conversation a year ago? We would be talking about how the world was experiencing one of the fastest economic rebounds in history, albeit a geographically uneven one, and how the prospects for the global economy were probably brighter than any of us could have imagined at the worst point of the COVID-19 pandemic. But now there's growing concern that major global economies are on a course of markedly weaker growth this year. So what's happened? Have we done a full 180 in just 12 months? Is pessimism about the global economy back on par with the early months of the pandemic in 2020? Yeah, so I think that um, a lot of how you've described things there is is accurate. Um, We've certainly slowed down significantly in terms of the pace of growth. Part of that we knew was going to happen, um, you know, in 2021, just because the rate of growth was so strong during that year. It was boosted by just a significant fiscal stimulus that was passed early that year, um, and also, of course, boosted by the vaccine rollout and the associated momentum from reopening. So we knew that things were going to slow, but they do seem to have slowed more significantly than than most folks would have anticipated at the start of the year. What's what's behind that? Um, I think a big part of it has been the rise in in inflation that's been experienced. Um, Higher inflation is a headwind for real income growth, um, for households, for consumers, and that's weighed on real consumer spending, which of course is is a big component. It's it's roughly 70% of gross domestic product. Then the second thing that's really weighed on the outlook has been housing activity. Um, housing activity has slowed materially, and that's been largely in response to the backup in interest rates uh, that's been experienced so far this year. And of course, that itself is is also connected to the higher inflation that's being experienced. I, I, the second, I think, the second part of your question was about, you know, are we are we seeing the same sort of fear that we experienced in early 2020? Um, I don't think so, not yet. Um, certainly, we're getting more questions about the potential for a recession uh, looking ahead. Um, but no one, you know, it doesn't strike me as though people are terribly fearful at the moment. Um, in 2020, you know, especially in, in around March of that year, we reached extreme levels of panic. Uh, I don't sense that sort of the, the concern in financial markets is close to being uh, that severe at the moment. So you don't think, um, based on your view, that we've entered a recessionary period yet? And do you have an estimate of what that timing would most likely look like if you think we're going down that route? 
Yeah, yes, it was interesting. Over the course of the uh, over the course of the summer, I was getting you know questions or inbounds from several of our clients asking about whether or not the U.S. had entered a recession in the first half of 2022. And understandably, people were, were citing a rule that is often taught in economics textbooks that if you have consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth, that it means that the economy's in recession. And, and based on what was reported, that occurred in, in the first half of 2022. Um, but our view is, is a little more nuanced. Uh, we look a little more broadly than just solely at gross domestic product. And there's other broad measures of activity that were very strong um, in the first half of the year. Employment growth you know, was averaging you know, in the several hundreds of thousands per month. Um, you also had growth of roughly uh, one, one to one and a half percent in real gross domestic income, which is, a, which is another measure of broad activity. So we don't think that there was a recession in the first half of the year. I actually think it's, it's possible that the, the, the one of the negative quarters of gross domestic product gets revised away. Um, there's updates coming in, in a few weeks that could do that. Um, but we do think that one is, is coming. So we do think that a recession is likely to occur. We have a, um, a suite of indicators that we follow and base our views of the business cycle on. And those right now are, are pointing to a recession sometime in 2023 as being when it would start. Our baseline is that it will start in the first half of the year. And the data, again, seem to be evolving in a way that's consistent with that. And how is the Fed responding in terms of hiking rates? So, yeah, that's also been a, a hot topic and um, a common question in the discussions that we've been having. Uh, the Fed has pivoted quite sharply, you know, over the last six months or so. And, you know, it's hard to believe that even, you know, as recently as February and March, they were actually continuing to, to buy assets. And it's only, you know, and, and had only started raising interest rates in March, right? Just six months ago was when the first rate hike occurred. And now we're looking at likely next week in, in, you know, in September, the, the another 75 basis point hike and the FUD funds rate moving, you know, to the three to three and a quarter percent range. So the Fed has been quite aggressive um, in, in, its, uh, in, its, in its response here. Um, we think that that continues uh, in the near term, given the continued elevated inflation that's being experienced. And speaking of inflation, rising prices, higher energy bills, and talk of recession, whether that happens sooner rather than later, is having an impact on household spending, in turn amplifying the negative ripple impact ready to take hold in the U.S. economy. What are you seeing in terms of consumer spending in the United States right now? Yeah, so there's, there's a few things to think about when it comes to the consumer. Again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, consumer spending is about 70% of the economy. So it's important to have a, a good grasp on what's going on there. And certainly we've seen a, a slowing in real spending growth, which again adjusts for the pace of inflation. And that's largely because incomes haven't been keeping up with how strong inflation has been. I think you know inflation is hovering at around 8%, slightly above that year over year, whereas wage growth is, you know, depending upon what measure you look at, five to 6%. So the typical person is, you know, wages, the pace of their wage growth isn't keeping up with the pace of inflation. And that creates a headwind for real consumption. Um, consumers are, are sort of, have been making up some of the difference with that by leaning on 
you know, increasing credit. So consumer credit growth has actually been remarkably strong. That's up about 14% year over year at the moment. And for, for, for what it's worth, that's the strongest pace in 1990, uh, since 1996. Um, this is a, a good thing for the here and now. It's, I think, one of the reasons why um, you know, we feel we've avoided recession so far this year. But of course, that's an unsustainable dynamic, right? Consumer credit is unlikely to keep growing at that rapid a pace. And so it, it does, it is cause for concern um, as we look further out. Uh, I think another thing that's interesting within consumption at the moment is the consumption rotation that's been at work. And this is something that's you know, been occurring largely over the last year or so uh, in the aftermath of, the, you know, of, of COVID. And it's that during COVID, everyone had to stay at home. And so people couldn't go out and, and take trips or go out to restaurants. So people spent their income on goods, right? Things like hot tubs, a new office desk if you were working from home, a new couch. So those sorts of purchases really boomed during the pandemic period. And over the last year or so, we've seen them start to moderate and they're continuing to moderate downwards. Um, And so that, again, has been a a relative headwind for consumption. And offsetting that, and again, the offset was very strong in 2021, but it's been diminishing in 2022, has been that people now feel more comfortable traveling eating out at restaurants, uh, staying in hotels, doing those sorts of things, going to, going to movie theaters, doing those sorts of in-person activities that were very depressed during COVID. And that had been boosting the numbers. But the interesting thing we're starting to see in the data, it's just been over the past few months, is that that impulse is now starting to wane. So the rate of growth, even in, in real services spending, is starting to moderate. And again, I think that's a, a cause for concern as we look ahead to 2023, because that has been such an important uh, growth driver in 2021 and 2022. Well, I wasn't one of those people that got a hot tub, but maybe maybe you did, David. Um, um, but you know, we we all have kind of been feeling when you talk about restaurants and things like that um, that there is that labor shortage. We all are kind of feeling that crunch, especially in in the United States. So while the labor market appears strong overall with record low unemployment rates and job vacancies at at near record highs, we saw unemployment in the U.S. rise ever so slightly in August. You mentioned this earlier, but are you seeing this as a sign of concern at all? So, I mean, certainly I think you, Alyssa, you've characterized the, the labor market appropriately. I think in the here and now it is extremely tight. I took a trip. Um, through you know Colorado and Utah over the summer for a couple of weeks, and I can't tell you the number of help wanted signs that I saw um, while I was uh, while I was on on my travels, and it felt like every restaurant, every hotel needed people, and were offering what what I thought to be were pretty high high wages to do so. Um, so so you you know I think that that's real, and I think it resonates with what a lot of people are experiencing in their daily lives, but also experiencing. In their business, in their in their you know within their businesses, um, payrolls growth you know consistent with the strong job openings has been robust, right? So when you look at those two things on the surface, you think, oh, the labor market's doing very very well. And I think in aggregate, if you looked at 2022, you would say that. Um, but there are some signs of concern, and I, I think the rise in the unemployment rate, as you suggested in August, is one of them. 
Uh, typically, we start to see unemployment begin to rise in the months leading up into a recession. So anytime that occurs, it is a red flag and it's something for, for people to be paying attention to. Um, now, what some folks may highlight about what happened in August is that that rise in unemployment occurred for quote unquote good reasons <laughs> in the sense that it was partly driven by a lot of folks coming back into the workforce and looking for a job. Um, so an increase in, in what we call labor force participation. Um, the interesting thing that we found in our analysis is that that's consistent with what's occurred historically uh, ahead of recession. So the rise in the dynamics that are underpinning the rise in unemployment you know, that you know in August are consistent with the dynamics that have occurred in the past leading into a recession. So, so that is concerning. And then I'd add on top of that, there are other indicators within the labor market that have shown some softening. Um, worker confidence in the labor market looks like it peaked earlier this year and has started to decline. That typically uh, occurs heading into a recession. And we've started to see a, a modest or gentle rise in initial jobless claims. And that, again, is something that historically has occurred um, at, you know, as you enter, call it the, the six to 12 months ahead of a recession. Interesting. To go back to that credit point that you made earlier, what about the savings that we've significantly seen go up during the pandemic? What's happened there in terms of the increase of credit, but what happened to those savings that people had? Yeah, so I think I think what you're referring to is what we call a lot about excess savings. So during the pandemic, people saved more than they typically were, they, they typically do. And a lot of economists and, and folks were referencing this as being a, a source of potential strength for the consumer. I think the challenge or the issue with the excess savings is that they're very concentrated amongst higher income earners. And, and so, you know, when you look at that stock and depending upon how you measure it, you know, you come up with something that's 2 billion or, or two and a half, or sorry, 2 trillion or two and a half trillion. Um, you know, but a lot of that, again, is concentrated amongst high income earners. And they don't tend to move the needle as much in terms of the rate of, of spending growth. Um, it's more, you know, the middle class and, and lower income earners um, who don't have the same excess savings. They didn't weren't able to build up that same stock as the higher income folks during the pandemic. And that's what I think is causing it's, it's those other groups that are causing um, the overall spending growth to struggle. But it is an important thing to be thinking about. And it does it does influence and, and, and can shape the outlook for growth. And what about the housing market? As rising interest rates push up borrowing costs and negative sentiment creeps in, the market has started to cool off. What can we expect with more rate hikes from the Fed likely? So yeah, the, the rise in interest rates has been very sharp, particularly when it comes to housing. I think that the average 30-year fixed rate was roughly 3% earlier in the year. Um, and actually just checked uh, before we started our call, it was over 6%. Uh, it was over 6% this week. So you've had effectively a doubling in the mortgage rate. And yet, despite that, we haven't seen, you know, any real shift in, in prices. Prices have, have stayed up. So that's really hurt uh, affordability. I think the average monthly mortgage payment on a newly purchased home has gone up from around $1,300 at this time last year to about $2,200. Um, which is a $900 increase. And that's just on a scale that 
has never been seen before, right? Even just historically, we've had these affordability shocks. The increase has been roughly $300. So what we're going through this time is about three times as severe. So I certainly feel the, um, you know, the struggles that, that people are, are feeling when it comes to housing affordability, particularly if you're looking to, to move, into, uh, in, move into your first home. Um, I think from a price perspective, we often get questions on that side is, you know, how do you feel what will happen with house prices? Um, house prices, you know, I, I don't think will be all that affected by this. Um, you might get some modest downturn uh, as you, if you, if we're right and you do enter a recession in, in 2023, but we'd be thinking about something of the order of magnitude of, of call it 5% or 10%, nothing like the, you know, 30 or 30% or so that occurred um, in, from 2007 to 2010 during the, during the financial crisis. So, Folks should feel somewhat reassured, I think, on, on that side. There's not the same excess in terms of housing that you had during that prior period. There's also, I think, very favorable demographics in the United States. And, and valuations in the U.S., you know, despite the fact that they've run up so much, um, you know, are, are actually quite compelling relative to what you see in, in some of the other advanced or developed market economies. So um, I, I do think that the house prices should, you know, should remain firm. Maybe they come a little bit, but we're not looking at a significant or material correction. Where I'm more worried is on the housing activity side. And in housing activity, we have seen, you know, a significant decline. Depending upon what measures you look at, uh, mortgage purchase application volumes are down 40% from earlier in the year. Housing starts down, I, I believe, roughly 20% from earlier in the year and similar types of magnitude for existing home sales and new home sales. So we've seen a significant decline in, in uh, housing activity measures. And, and that's actually very important for the business cycle. Um, typically, we start to see housing activity weaken about a year ahead of a recession. So that analysis, again, not to uh, beat a dead horse with this, but that feeds into our, our team's baseline call that the economy will enter a recession in the first half of 2023. And what would the potential impacts of a U.S. recession be on other regions of the world? What should they be thinking about? Yeah, so that's that. That it really depends on on where, what country you're in, and what the trade relationship in terms of the direct economic in, uh, impacts, what the trade relationship is with the U.S. Certainly, there'll be negative spillover effects for large trade partners like. Uh, Europe, China, Canada, and Mexico, um, just as U.S. demand, if U.S. demand falls, then demand, there'll be a corresponding or a multiplier effect that is felt in those other regions. And I would say that the excess goods consumption that we spoke about earlier, um, that continues to be a, a feature of the economy in the U.S., adds to the potential effects that could be felt elsewhere. And that's because so much of the goods that are consumed in the United States are imported from elsewhere. And so if goods consumption falls, there's a negative effect on companies that are exporting, you know, in, in places like China, Europe, uh, Canada, and Mexico. And then, of course, if you're not in those, what I would call like the larger trade partners of the U.S., you know, if you're in a, if you're in a country that's um, sort of outside of those four, there'll still be effects, right? Because that you probably trade with uh, with China or Europe or Canada or Mexico, and and so there's there's negative uh, there'll be there would be headwinds for your economy 
that would flow from that. And this is really important because the U.S. is still the largest economy in the world. Um, it tends to be what drives um, the global economy uh, during cycles still. Um, so the effects will be, I think, felt throughout the globe, um, but to varying degrees, again, depending on the direct trade relationship. And then the second thing that I'd mentioned on this side uh, is that the U.S. economy tends to punch above its weight <laughs> in terms of its effects on financial markets, right? Uh, so it tends to it, it tends to be a large driver of global risk appetite. And so, if it, you know, if we're if we're at, if we're if call is right and the U.S. economy enters a recession in 2023, that's likely to cause some risk aversion amongst investors, not just in the United States but around the world. And so, financial markets in other regions. Um, will likely go through, uh, you know, a similar risk-off type of period, and and again, I think to the extent that, that occurs depends on how directly they they tie in with the U.S. Thanks for sharing that. Two of the president's flagship pieces of legislation, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and Inflation Reduction Act, make significant federal commitments to expanding clean energy technologies and clean power sources. Do you see the U.S.'s transition to net zero being any way affected, accelerated or adversely so, by a slowdown in growth? Yeah, so I think that that is a a, a tricky one to be to be thinking about. Um, you know, as economists, we often get a finger pointed at us as saying, "Well, you know, you've got you say on the one hand, but on the other hand," and I try to uh, <laughs> I try to avoid that in my in my analysis. But this is one time where. I'll, I'll have to, to have to lean on that uh, on that way of thinking. And what I'd say is that in the, it really depends on the time horizon. I think in the near term, a, a recession probably holds back the energy transition somewhat uh, to the extent that you know businesses would would be doing capital investment that would enable energy transition. Um, that might you know they, they might delay their plans. Um, households that might be you know conducting renovations, you know, designed to increase the energy efficiency of their, of their homes and or, you know, you know, input solar panels on their roofs, there might be, you know, some inclination to delay that decision if there is a downturn. Um, so, so to that extent, maybe there's a near-term, uh, a near-term headwind. But I think as we look further out and you look beyond that, that temporary period, because, you know, while recessions occur, you know, they've occurred throughout history, they sound scary, um, but the recession we're looking for, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, we don't foresee it as being something as something like the financial crisis. We think it's something more moderate as our baseline. So uh, something like a one and a half percent contraction in, in gross domestic product, um, a two to three percentage point rise on the unemployment rate. That would be on par roughly with or roughly equivalent to what occurred in 1990 to 1991 um, for, 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 for listeners of the podcast. Um, so, so once you get through that, again, that temporary downturn, uh, I think then potentially it reaccelerates, right? It reaccelerates the energy transition. And that's for a couple of reasons. It's like the a recessions free up resources, right? So resources get freed up and maybe there's renewable energy companies or energy transition companies right now that are having difficulty finding people to fill roles because of the tight labor market. Well, if unemployment rises, then maybe some folks that are laid off or, you know, you know, are able to transition into that industry uh, more more easily, um, and then and then the other thing that could occur 
that could support the transition sort of as again as we're looking beyond the recessionary period and into the recovery period is that governments might become if in, if inflation starts to come in um, more significantly and inflation stops being the challenge that it is today potentially the government becomes more willing to you know engage in stimulative measures that encourage the development of of uh, of the energy transition and so to that extent, maybe there's there's an acceleration. So again, again, I hate to use it, but in the near term, I think um, potentially some some headwinds while the recession is going on, but then uh, you know potentially the, the pathway we reaccelerate on the path towards that energy transition as resources are freed up, and potentially there's there's more uh, stimulus measures put in place by uh, by the elected governments. You did mention some bright spots about it, so it's not all doom and gloom. Um, so that's really great to hear. Yeah, and I just I just add I just add a, I just add, I just add one thing, uh, Alyssa, because it's I think it's important to emphasize that it's um, look the Fed the Fed the Federal Reserve doesn't want a recession, right? A recession obviously creates pain for people. No one wants to see people lose their jobs. Um, that's you know there's hardship involved with that that you know can can have really major effects on people's lives and. No one wants to see that, and so it is a, it is a, it is something that they will seek and try to avoid. Um, but I think the, the challenge with the current period is that inflation is so elevated, and the risk is that inflation becomes entrenched. And so the Fed is is really, in our view, their, their choice is is between a rock and they're between a rock and a hard place. Um, if they continue to hike, like it looks like they're going to do, yes, they could cause a recession and and potentially, you know, we go down that path and, and there's hardship involved. But if they don't hike, right, if, if they step away, then what happens is, you know, financial conditions loosen, inflation continues and persists and are, you know, could become more entrenched. And that just creates a, a bigger problem down the line. And it, what, it, what it results in is eventually the Fed having to raise interest rates by even more and, and potentially eventually even a more severe recession down the line. So um, it, there might be some tough medicine coming in the near term, but I, I think the Fed, the Fed would see it and, and, and I would agree with them as being the, the lesser of two evils in terms of the, the two paths that, that could be taken here. Well, David, this has been a very interesting discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Alyssa. It was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, all the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Perspectives. Visit MacquarieInsights.com to access Macquarie's economic research and reports. Thank you for listening to this Macquarie Group podcast. All episode disclaimers can be found in the show notes.